All right, you guys, if you have your Bibles, keep them handy, because I want to look with you guys tonight at this passage that Kat just read to us. It's found in John chapter 6, and we're going to kind of like just take it apart and see what's going on there, okay? Now, as you do, a couple things to know. John is one of what we call the, one of the four Gospels, and the Gospels in the New Testament are, simp- are really, they're basically biographies of Jesus. There are four of them. You, might, you may have heard of these. This is one of the first things I remember learning when I was a kid at my church, because they had Matthew and Mark carved in a pulpit over here, and Luke and John carved over here. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that kind of felt to me like home base. And it's these four biographies of Jesus. But they're not really just straight biography. They're written um, with, a, with a particular agenda, with a particular purpose. Um, John, in, in particular, is trying to make a very specific point when, when he writes what we call his gospel. And the events that he chose to include... And the ways that he arranged them were all highly purposeful. It's a persuasion piece. He was trying to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah that the, that the Israelites have long waited for. He is the It's in him. If you can find him, then you're going to find life. And he, he basically says as much at the end of his gospel. Listen, listen to this. You don't need to turn there, but this is almost the very end of it. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I think it's an interesting exercise to ask, well, why did John choose to include this and not that? Like, what was it about this particular moment? This event? He's, like, oh, he's like, there's a whole pile of things that he could have included, but why did he choose this? What did he think was so important about this particular moment that was worth us talking about, you know, 2,000 years later. And I want to help you discover why he chose this tonight. First, by inviting you to forget about it altogether, okay? And we're going to go back to the Old Testament. There's a couple of things that happen in the Old Testament. Um, don't worry about John 6. Just follow me around. And, uh, and once we've looked in the Old Testament, we'll come back to here. And I think it'll all come back around in a way that might be, might be helpful to you to understand what John was thinking about, okay? So what you need to know is that in the earliest moments of the Old Testament... When God made the world and put Adam and Eve in it, when he creates humanity, the purpose from day one was that we, humanity, us, would serve in this particular kind of three-part office of prophets and priests and kings, or kings and queens, if you will, prophet, priest, and king. Adam and Eve, in particular, were placed to fulfill that role, those roles of prophet, priest, and king. Um, the problem was almost immediately everything falls apart. But if you, before it falls apart, for this fleeting glimpse, what you'll see is that Eden itself is designed to be a temple. It's a place where, like, where the, the earthly world and the spiritual world come and, and converge. It is, if, you, if you go back and you can see that when the temples are built, they're built as an echo of Eden. And Eden itself is just filled with this temple imagery. And Adam and Eve were placed in this particular place, in this temple, to serve in the role of priests. Not only were they priests, but they were given dominion. God famously says to them, rule over creation, over the fish, the sea, everything, everything that's, that's on the earth. They were serving, not just as priests, but as king and as queen. And they were prophets. God spoke to Adam the things this is, this is nice. This is good. God spoke to Adam the things that he was supposed to speak to Eve, and Adam and Eve together the things that they were supposed to speak for the world. They were prophets. They served as prophet and priest and king. But as you might know, it broke almost like immediately, right? This snake shows up, and he usurps the throne, 
and he places himself in charge, which is why Jesus is going to say centuries later, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's actually John speaking. Jesus says, Jesus calls him the prince of this age, and that rulership is, is broken. The priests themselves, you might recall, were expelled from Eden. They were kicked out of the temple. And everything breaks. Everything goes horribly awry almost immediately. But a promise begins that it won't always be so. This role of prophet, priest, and king will be restored. And throughout the Old Testament, it's this, you guys, the whole thing is this giant search for the one who will finally do it, who can re- reunite these things and bring the world back to the way that it was always meant to be. There are a few people that get sort of kind of-ish close, kind of, right? Never too close, but a little bit close. Moses is one of them. Moses is one of the primary characters. And you see in Moses that this estrangement and this mangled rule that had begun to break everything, it begins to start, sort of kind of soften, right? Moses' life. In fact, let's just do this. What are some, there's a lot we could say about Moses. Moses did a lot too. Um, give me a couple of highlights from, from the life of Moses. Anything up top, down here? What do you got here? Ten Commandments. Okay, so Moses is the giver of the law. Massive, hugely important thing. What else? Exodus, the kind of pulling the people out of Egypt on this great big journey. It's supposed to be a short trip to, to the promised land. Ends up being a 40-year long detour is the Exodus. Very good. Any other things? What is it? Red sea. The Red Sea. Okay, so, and that's kind of the beginning of the Exodus. Maybe between like Passover and Exodus is this Red Sea moment where God is bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and as they go, okay? Lots of different things. In the midst of what we would probably call, put, put, it, put in this, organize it in the Exodus, um, the people are in the desert for 40 years, and while they're there, they get hungry, and there's simply not enough food to eat. You can kind of read one particular kind of like summary of all this in Numbers chapter 11. Number, you don't need to, you can, but you don't have to right now. But Numbers 11 is a place where the people are traveling through this thing, and they just grow weary of it. And there's a line in particular, Numbers 11, where Moses asks this question. Just, just hear it. He says, where can I get meat for all these people? Where are we going to find the food to feed this giant crowd, okay? A lot of other stuff goes down in, in Numbers 11. Among them, the people are grumbling. God provides bread, bread from heaven, manna. It's called the bread that came down. When he provides in Numbers 11, there's way more than they needed, right? He doesn't just meet the need. He overabundantly, excessively overmeets the need. So there's this one who is the ruler over Israel. He's in this kingly role. And he is constantly making intercession for Israel because he is a priest. And he is a prophet too. And this prophet, priest, and king, he feeds the people. Okay? Where can we get food enough for all these people? And then the Lord provides in abundance. Okay? So just hold that thought. Okay? Moses is a big deal. Another guy that's a pretty big deal, uh, maybe not as well known as Moses, but you might have heard of him. His name is Elisha. There's two guys that have similar sounding names. There's Elijah with a J, and then Elisha with an SH. Elisha was kind of the apprentice to Elijah. And Elijah and Elisha, they are probably, I think you can make a pretty strong case, the most significant prophets in the Old Testament. You might think of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and those guys are a big deal too. But Elijah was like the head of the thing, and Elisha is his number two guy. And Elisha one time had a circumstance where he had two little bread, and too many people. You could read about that one in 2 Kings chapter 4. I'll, I'll give you just an excerpt from it. Just check this out. 2 Kings 4, verse 42. It says, A man came bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, bringing Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, 
along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he said before them, and they ate, and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Okay? So we got Moses. He's this guy that's most closely living out this prophet, priest, and king. Um, and then we've got Elisha, who was just one of the most profoundly important prophets. And they both oversee these really important moments where you got a whole slew of hungry people and simply not enough food. And yet, through them, these meager provisions are multiplied many times over and the people are fed and fed in abundance. Okay? Make sense? Now, with those two things in your mind, kind of loaded into your ram, go back to John 6 and just listen to some of this language. John 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, quote, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? You guys hear the echo? Yeah, that should remind you of what we just read in Numbers 11, where Moses says, where can I get meat for all these people? I suggest to you that that echo is intentional. John is trying to show this correspondence between Moses, the provider, and Jesus, the provider. He's, he's, he's hoping that you're going to make a connection. But hey, 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 deja vu. I've seen this before. Similar, sim- with great similar intentionality is verse 12. It says, when they all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of five Barley loaves, interesting, left over by those who had eaten them. And that is an allusion, I think pretty clearly, to Elisha saying, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Okay? Now, do you believe me? Do you believe me that John is doing this on purpose? He's seeking to create a correspondence in your mind between Moses and Jesus, between Elisha and Jesus, if you, if you accept that that connection is there, do you know why he is doing it? What is his greater purpose that he's pointing to? I think, you guys, that it is this. What he's saying is that the search is finally over. The prophet, priest, and king to whom these guys pointed that we've been looking for for centuries has finally come. The prophet is here, the priest is here, the king is here, and it's all one guy. He's saying, you guys, the true and better Moses has come. And in fact, if you go through, if you read through John 6 and read through Numbers 11, you could probably come up with at least half a dozen, maybe eight or nine, depending on how you count them, similarities, conspicuous data points between Numbers 11 and John 6. The people are grumbling and complaining, the people are grumbling and complaining. The bread comes down from heaven, that Jesus says that he is the bread come down from heaven. All of these things are all working out, are all meant to tell us, no, 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 the one that Moses pointed to, the real one, has come. But not just the true and better Moses, that it's it's the true and better Elisha, right? That Jesus does exactly what he did, only he always one-ups it. He always does it better. Elisha fed like 100 people. Do you remember that? How many people is Jesus going to feed? 5,000. This is Barry's Elisha. Like, I got that. Like 50 times, right? He just crushes him. And in fact, you guys, every Old Testament story points to Jesus. And, and John points this out over and over and over. This is just John 6. This is just like 14 verses. But if you go through his whole book, all 21 chapters, you're going to see this phenomena happening repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. He keeps going to these Old Testament events and saying, you know, check it out. 
conspicuous similarity. Jesus fulfills that story and that story and that story and that story and that story. The whole thing, the entire Old Testament was constantly pointing to him. And Jesus himself says it. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John writes his book to say, come to him. He is the source of everything you need. Okay? Now, John is not only pointing out these uncanny similarities between these characters of Jesus and Moses and Jesus and Elisha, but into the very details of the story. He, he loves, John loves sprinkling in these little kind of freebies that don't advance the story, that aren't necessary for the core of the thing, but that add flavor and color and life. He loves to do things that I think are designed to make it vivid and picturesque and to help you imagine being there. He did one, one thing, one of my favorite examples of this, this is just cool, this is in John 12, in verse three. This is the scene where this woman, Mary, comes and she breaks a bottle of perfume open and pours it on Jesus' feet. Listen to this little detail. It says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And listen to this line. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I think there's probably at least two reasons John is doing that. One is he wants you to, to envision it. Have you ever been in a room filled with fragrance, right? And, he's, he's, and so he wants you to have that. But it's also because literally he remembers it, right? You, you guys know how smell and memory are close. You know this? You walk into a hallway and it smells like your grandparents' house and you're like, oh, it's like I'm in my, this is some, some weird thing that God has linked our memories to our noses. And I think John, he can smell it. He remembers what it's like, and he wants us to do that, okay? He does that all the time. And one, one side is to be transportive for us, but I think he also has a theological point too. So come back to John 6, and look at this interesting little detail here. In verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down, and there was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them, okay? Now, so What? that there's grass. Why does John, John's like, man, there's so much I left on the cutting room floor. I'm only telling you these handful of things, but he includes the fact that it's, there's a lot of grass. Right? It's a funny little detail to include, but I think it's an allusion to a passage that many of you probably know pretty well. I think it's an allusion to Psalm 23, that when the Messiah comes, Psalm 23 is about the Messiah. It's, it's a picture of this, this shepherd who will come. And you guys probably know the line, right? When the shepherd comes, he will make us lie down in... Green pastures, right? There's a couple of times this shows up in John's gospel. He makes it a point to, to draw our attention to the grass. This was a green pasture. This was a lush, lavish place. And that is because the messianic image in the Old Testament is full of greenery and abundance and richness and beauty. I was, I was in North Carolina this weekend, and I don't know what they do down there for their grass, but it's horrible. Do you know that North Carolina grass is like super brown all winter? Like, everything just looks dead. I don't know what the deal is with that, but it all looks horrible. And it'll be, I'm sure it'll be better in about three weeks and everything greens up. But green is good. Grass is good and everything is better. In John 10, Jesus says that the sheep will come in and go out and find pasture. It's the same thing. And I think that what John is doing is he's saying, you guys, the messianic images, all this stuff, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to make everything rich and alive and fresh and green and beautiful. He's saying, this is him. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better Elijah. He is the one who makes all things well. He brings abundance. And the grass is green when this guy shows up. Okay? Now, 
If you think I'm making a bunch of stuff out of nothing, just keep reading the text, okay? So look what happens in verse 14 and then in verse 15, because I promise you I'm not making this up. In John 6, 14, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, the crowd is revealing with this remark, not just that Jesus is a prophet, he's the prophet, definite article. And now he's not just the prophet, but he is the prophet who was to come. They reveal that they are anticipating, looking for, waiting for, scanning, checking. Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Right? This happens over and over in John's gospel. If you go to John 1, 21, they're trying to get their head around John the Baptist, who is this freaky, weird guy, like all kinds of weird stuff. And they ask him, John 1, 21, they ask him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Because they thought that Elijah was going to come back. He says, I'm not. This is not Jesus. This is John the Baptist. And then they ask him this, are you the prophet? Are you the one? They're looking for him. Okay. And then later on in John 7, uh, they, they say this to Jesus. On hearing Jesus' words, this is verse 40, on hearing Jesus' words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. They were waiting for someone. They were looking for someone. They were scanning for someone. I'm curious, does anybody happen to know there's one very clear prediction in the Old Testament that God would send the prophet? There's lots of messianic images, but one that's very, very clear. Do anybody know what that is? For the prophet is the, the bullseye target that they search for? It is, for, okay, it's Moses who says it, whoever said that. Do you know where it is? It's in the Bible. That's exactly right, Ray. It's good. It's Deuteronomy 18. If you guys want to go back there, you can. If not, I'll just read it to you. But listen to this. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And the Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. This is still this dialogue with Moses from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him. I guess from that point on, the nation's like, all right, where is he? Moses was a good scene for them, but he's been dead for a long time. Where is the new one that's going to come like Moses? Where is the prophet? Where is the priest? Where is the king? And what happens here in this feeding that has an uncanny echo to Moses, this feeding that has an uncanny echo to Elisha, to these two preeminent prophets and makes them think, oh my gosh, he's here. He's the one. Did you see it? He's finally come. Not just priests, but watch this. Look at the next verse. What do they want to make him into, you guys, in verse 15? A king. This is what we're waiting for. When will these things be reunited? They are looking for the prophet. They're looking for the king. And in Christ, what John is saying is he's here. The Messiah is here. The shepherd is here. The prophet, the priest, and the king has come. And the reason that John includes this story in particular is because he thought it might have persuasive power for you to say, wow, there's a lot of things coming together right here. Maybe the one that you need most of all in all your life, your single greatest need, maybe that guy has finally actually come. Now, None of us were there on that particular day to partake of that particular pile of fish and bread, right? That was a very specific gift at a specific time for a specific group of hungry people. 
But later on in that chapter, listen to what Jesus says. Okay, that was, a, that was momentary and limited in scope. What he's about to say lasts forever and is available to everyone. Jesus declared, this is down in 635. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. It's me. And he who comes to me will never grow hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. From, in verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's why John includes this story. Because it's like, no, the, that bread was, I mean, that was interesting. But Jesus, that's easy. The amazing thing is not that bread, but the bread that the bread of life has come. And he came so that you might live forever. Guys, the meal that we missed out on, it's no big deal. It's fine. But the meal that is, Jesus himself, is the biggest deal that there could possibly be. And if you have have not yet made the decision to center your life on him, I hope that tonight might be the night that that changes. That you will let him become richly and actually your primary source of sustenance. Because he is the prophet. He's the long-awaited one. He is the priest who can actually stand between God and man and make everything right. And he is the king. He is the one who is fit to rule in righteousness and kindness, graciousness and in power. And tonight, right now, this night, this very night, you could join him either for the first time or the first time with a fresh meaning at a meal that commemorates his giving of himself that we might feast on him forever. We do this every week when we gather, as many Christians do and have done for centuries. We pause our service where we sing songs and we look in the scriptures and we just stop to meet him at the table to to remember this extraordinary event in which he gave his life for us and not just to remember but to anticipate, to look forward to the day that he comes again and takes us to a wedding feast which will be richer than bread and fish, rich wine, beauty and goodness. And I hope that tonight you might join us on this. Again, whether it's the first time ever, maybe the first time from a new understanding that you might join us in this meal and that you would satisfy yourself for all of time and the one who gave himself for you.